grab your Bible, turn to Acts chapter 5. We're just going to jump right in. Luke, the author, gives us a good example to follow, right? He brings up Barnabas, son of encouragement, and then he gives us a, an example in Ananias and Sapphira not to follow. They put on a mask. That's what the word hypocrite means. It means to put on a mask and play a part. That was them. They played a part. They tried to be something that they really weren't, and they ignored Jesus' warnings about giving to please God alone. They were giving for a different purpose. They were giving to impress others, to be praised by men. Now, it would be easy to stand on the sidelines and judge them for their actions. But lest we think of ourselves too highly than we ought, it'd be better for us to take this story and this warning to heart and repent of our own hypocrisy. And as we sang this morning, run to the arms of Jesus. They're open wide. God calls his children to actual, genuine, real faith in community because whether we like it or not, the sins of our own life affect those around us. Our families, for sure, our church family as well. And what happened to this couple had a profound impact, not just on the church right there, but on the whole community. You can look back at verse 11. It says, great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. This event, Ananias and Sapphira, literally falling over, stopping breathing, it had, it just sent shockwaves through the church and through the, the city of Jerusalem. This was a big deal. It was not just this isolated incident that only a few people heard about. Everybody heard of this. There was no doubt no doubting that what was happening in the midst of God's people was something that God himself took seriously. And no doubt there was self-examination taking place within the hearts of the people in the church and in those in Jerusalem that day. So I mentioned this the last couple of weeks was kind of like this side story. There's a main theme to the book of Acts. The gospel is going out to Jerusalem and Samaria and Judea and all these places to the ends of the earth. And this uh, event in the church, kind of inside the church, behind the closed door, so to speak, was sort of this side story. It supports the main story. Now we get back to this main story. And so we're going to pick it back up in chapter 5, verses 12 through 16. We've read through these this morning, so we won't do it all again. But you can glance through there and see the point of it. Acts, in Acts chapter 3, Peter and John are used by God for the healing of the lame beggar, right? That's what the kids just, we finally got that square together this morning. Chapter three, that's what happened. 40 plus years old of not being able to walk. And this guy one day after this encounter with Peter and John jumps up and starts leaping and walking and praising God. And that opens the door for Peter to start preaching. Right, that, that miracle, that sign opened the door for the gospel to be proclaimed. And he did. He preached it boldly. He's talking to a bunch of Jews and he says, you guys murdered the author of life. You and your leaders did it. He's not pulling any punches. He's being very upfront. He's being very bold. But he says, look, you did this, but if you repent and you turn back, your sins will be washed away. Well, that's a beautiful sermon right there. One of the best, better than one you'll ever hear me preach. And it was, it had an effect. Thousands of people were added to the church that day. 
chapter 4, they get arrested for doing this kind of thing, but they're released and they're told, hey, just, just don't talk about Jesus anymore. Keep him to yourself and we'll be okay. Well, they, they don't do that. They go back to the church body and what do they pray for? As something that we prayed this morning together for, they prayed that God would give, a, give them extra boldness to go and to preach, despite the persecution, that they would be bold in preaching his word. And then in chapter 5 that we're in now, we see generosity is celebrated, we see hypocrisy is judged, and we see the people of Jerusalem are recognizing that something important is happening. Have you guys ever felt that way? Have you ever been a part of something? Maybe some people might even feel that's what's going on in our nation right now. Not everything is positive, right? I mean, in the early church, great things were happening, but people just died. So it's kind of this bittersweet feeling, but you just kind of feel the rumblings of God doing something special. That's what was going on here. During all of this, look at verse 12. Signs and wonders were regularly taking place regularly done by the hands of the apostles. So these these friends of Jesus, these eyewitnesses of his resurrection were being used by the Spirit to bring about good in the physical lives of people who were, who were, who came that day at that time. Now we've already seen if you look back at chapter 4, 29 and 30, we've seen how this was possible. Luke says, and now this is their prayer. Lord, look upon their threats and grant to us, your servants, to continue to speak your word with all boldness. And here's what they say. While you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. So who was actually doing the signs and wonders? The Lord, right? It was the Lord who was holding, stretching out his hand to heal. And that was through the conduits of the apostles here in the book of Acts, but it's the Lord's hand who is ex- being extended to heal, whose name contains the power to heal the sick and to cast out demons. It wasn't Peter's name. He says it was Jesus's name. So the Lord is stretching out his hand to heal and do these signs and wonders through the power and name of Jesus. And notice how the church prays here, because it's important. They prayed for boldness to keep speaking this this message. And they expected, think about that, they expected that while they were speaking with boldness, the power of God through the name of Jesus was going to do incredible things among them. Don't lose sight of that. Because I wonder, have we lost that expectation in the church today? Because they expected incredible things to take place. Do we still? Or are we just content to to show up on Sunday morning, go through the motions, sing our songs, read our Bible, do those things, but we don't really expect God to do something incredible? seems clear to me that the early Christians believed that these things were going to result in that. The preaching of the word boldly, gathering together regularly, being of one united mind, it's going to result in incredible things. Do I expect that today? Do, Do you expect that? From the Lord today. Is it the pretty good news that we have to share? Is it the all right message of the gospel? Or is it the really good news? Is it the best news? Because it's one or the other. And how we respond to it and share it tells how we think about it. What we think about it. There's power in the name of Jesus. But 
If we never expect God to do incredible things by his spirit and the word, then we're going to miss them. We're not going to see them. We won't recognize him when he actually does them. But make no mistake, God continues doing incredible things in and through his people because it demonstrates his power, his authority, and his glory. The apostles here were the instruments, conduits, if you will, of God uh, to deliver people from physical sickness. Even as we see towards the end of this text, even uh, demonic oppression, they were freed from these things. And it turned Jerusalem and soon the whole world upside down. It rocked it. Not only that, but it gave these, these signs and wonders gave credibility and uh, credibility to the apostles and to their message that Jesus really did defeat death. And these healings and deliverances were evidences of it. Now, it's a wonderful thing. You can imagine being there witnessing this, this lame man who hadn't walked for 40 years, walking around, leaping, praising God. I mean, even the people that didn't like what was going on said that they saw it and couldn't argue with it. They couldn't speak against it because this guy was there, standing in the midst of all of them. It's a wonderful thing to be restored physically from sickness to health. But if our hearts haven't been transformed by the gospel, then our physical healing means very little. This is why I think that Jesus always goes for the heart, even when healing people's physical bodies. He constantly told the ones who he'd healed physically, he said things like this, go and sin no more. He says, your faith has saved you. He says that your sins have been forgiven. These are all things that have spiritual undertones and themes to them. The physical healing was good, but Jesus went further than that because their bodies are not their biggest need. The problems with their physical flesh are not their greatest problem. If you remember, this kind of thing didn't sit well with the Sadducees, right? This was the group of people that did not believe in the resurrection, uh, they certainly didn't believe that Jesus was God. There's no afterlife. There was nothing to worry about beyond the here and now. And so there was only just the physical. Well, if that's the case, then these physical healings are okay. But there was more to them. And that's why they were so upset. That's why they wanted to pick up stones to kill Jesus. Because it was he was addressing more than just what was going on in on the outside in the flesh. He was going after the heart. I think back to just Acts chapter 3 with, with the lame beggar. What did he do immediately after God healed his body physically? He got up. He started running and leaping and doing what? And praising God. And one of the first things he did, one of the first places he went, was straight to the temple. I think he went there probably for ceremonial cleansing, but also as a way of worship. If you look back at chapter 3, verse 11, Luke says that he clung to Peter. He clung to him. He clung to Peter and John. He wanted to continue in the ways of Jesus like they were. And so he joined them. He stayed with them. His heart had been transformed, not just his body. Imagine if you hadn't walked for 40 years. You'd get up and run around, but what would be your next thing? Would it be to join with these people? Or would it be to go and explore and go travel and see all the things that you couldn't get to before? 
think the fact that he just clings to Peter and John and stays with them is evidence that there's more to it than just physical. He'd been healed all the way through. His heart had been transformed. John, I think, helps us understand this. At the end of his gospel record, he's talking in chapter 20 about these signs and wonders. And he says in verse 31 there, he says, but these are written, talking about the signs and wonders. He says, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. If you get right down to it, isn't spiritual healing and transformation the most incredible thing of all? That's not to downplay the physical healing that's going on here in the book of Acts, because that's incredible and important and useful in the kingdom. But I think the idea of physical or spiritual transformation is what just rings true of the whole Bible, especially of the whole New Testament. I think that was Jesus' point with the religious leaders after he'd healed the man who was lowered through the roof. You remember that story? He heals him. He tells him, take up your bed, your mat, and go. Your sins have been forgiven. And that's what really set the religious leaders off. It wasn't that they healed the guy. In fact, they were kind of irritated about that. But what really made them mad, what really ticked them off, was the fact that Jesus healed this man spiritually and forgave his sins. The fact that he could make his this man's body whole physically was okay. But now you, you say you forgive sins, you're equal with God. That's where they drew the line. But they recognized there was a spiritual aspect to even the physical healing. I don't think that what we're saying minimizes these physical healings. I think they just put them in the right perspective. The signs and miracles and healings have a purpose They prove, as John says, they prove that Jesus is the Son of God and they prove that you should believe Him. That's that's the point of them. That's what John says, that Jesus is the Son of God, that you should believe Him. That's the point of these things. You're not born again when you just accept enough signs and wonders to believe that Jesus is the Savior of the world. You're born again when you actually trust Him as your personal Savior with simple childlike faith. Verse 12 says the believers were all together worshiping in Solomon's portico. Remember, uh, they're all together of one mind, united in spirit. They're back in Solomon's portico. Remember, this is the place where most recently Peter preached that big message before the lame man was healed. Uh, it's also back in John 10, the place where Jesus preached before this. And that's where the Jews picked up stones to kill him. Because he said in that talk, he said, I and the Father are one. Right? So that was what set them off regularly. Jesus claimed to divinity. Uh, the significance, I think, of Solomon's portico is some, somewhat practical. That was a spot within the temple grounds where it would be big enough where thousands of people could gather. And that's what was going on here. Secondly, I think it was in close proximity to where other Jews were going to the temple to worship and take their sacrifices that they were going to see healings and miracles take place. If you look at verse 13 and 14, I don't know about you, but it's a little bit confusing. It says, none of the rest dared to join them, but people held them in high esteem. And then verse 14 says, and more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both both men and and women. So 
I don't know if you're confused by this. I was asking, well, which one is it? Did, were they afraid to join them or were multitudes being added? Well, I think it goes back to verse 11. So I've already read this morning, great fear came upon all who heard these things, uh, all who heard of what happened to Ananias and Sapphira. So Jews outside the church were scared to unite themselves to the church under false pretenses. Because they'd just seen a husband and wife lie and drop dead. And so for them, I think they're thinking, okay, if I don't really mean this, if it's actually not true of me, I better not say it. If I don't really want to trust Jesus with everything, I better not say it and it not be true. Because I could fall dead and be buried just like they did, just like they were. And so great fear, they're saying, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna keep my distance. And yet there are some who are all in. Who said, yeah, I believe this. This is true. I trust it. And so great multitudes were joined to the church. John Stott says, the presence of the living God, whether manifest through preaching or miracles or both, is alarming to some and appealing to others. Some are frightened away while others are drawn to faith. I think it was the same in the days that followed when Paul wrote to the Corinthian church. He said, for we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. And I think it's the same still for us today, isn't it? You can take the message of the gospel in the same way, in the same tone, in the same method, and some people are going to hear it and be convicted of sin and turn by faith to salvation. And some are going to hear it and they're going to get angry and they're going to resist and they might even call you bigoted and hateful from life to life or from death to death. It's the same way. We know it's the same way today as it was then because it was the same way in our own hearts, wasn't it? At one point in our lives, we were either indifferent to the gospel, we didn't believe it when we heard it, or we actively rejected it. We said, I do not want that. At one point, we were all there, but God, through his spirit, made us alive together with Christ and saved us by his grace, not so that we could boast, but to display his goodness and his mercy. That's what Ephesians 2 tells us. I don't want us to miss, though, the importance of these verses when it comes to the church today. Jason mentioned some church growth books. We've collectively read quite a few books of how to grow the church, how it ought to be structured, how it ought to be led according to scripture. And I can't recall any of the authors ever once say that church members falling down dead is a means of church growth. You can imagine that that would not be the part of the formula for church growth that anyone would write about. In fact, oftentimes new books that are written about growing the church propose things that my guess would probably frustrate and confuse these apostles and early church members. They weren't in the least bit concerned about mood lighting or sound systems or big comfortable gathering spaces or the pastor having just the right mix of humor and scripture in his sermon. 
There was something far more pressing to these early believers. And you know what it is. The proclamation of the gospel. That's what mattered to them. And I wonder, is, is proclaiming the resurrected Jesus the most pressing thing for us? In his commentary on the book of Acts, Stanley Horton says this. He says, some people imagine we must lower God's standards for the church to make progress in today's world. But this has never been true. The church has always been strengthened when it catches a vision of the holiness of God and seeks practical holiness in individual lives. By God's grace, this is what we see happening to the church in the book of Acts. The power and holiness of God motivates Christians to seek personal holiness. Now think about what we've seen so far in the book of Acts. The Spirit is poured out on God's people. This prompts bold preaching. Signs and wonders are being performed. Evangelism is happening among the Jews there in town. This results in a bunch of people being saved and being added to the church. But it also brings about persecution, right? Even the persecution, though, prompts the church to pray for more boldness to speak about Jesus. This Dedication to the Lord in prayer and in practice results in extreme generosity within the church body, but it also results in some hypocrisy. Judgment falls. People get a clearer sense of God's holiness. As a result, the church explodes in a good way. It grows. Verse 14 says, Multitudes of both men and women were added to the Lord. Guys, we don't need more stuff just to keep us busy in the Christian life. We don't need ministries that don't emphasize the gospel clearly. We don't need attractive buildings and and spaces in the church, and we don't need attractive people on the stage, though I would argue Jordan is pretty good looking. (laughs) For the church to grow, what do we need? For the church to grow, Christians need a proper fear of God and a desire for holiness. I think that's true. We need a, this is what the early church had, right? A fear of God. They were, there was some fear there, some good holy fear, but they also saw the holiness of God and this resulted in a desire for personal holiness. I think too often churches substitute programs for personal holiness. We can't do it. Because when we do, It resolves in unsaved people or immature Christians being led to think that their busyness in church things is all that God really wants for them. When every book of the Bible promotes personal holiness and Christ-likeness instead. What we need most is a renewed passion for knowing and treasuring Jesus Christ. What happens then, we catch that kind of a vision is that his greatness and his worth launch us out into the, into the world for gospel ministry and sharing it with others, not just trying to keep busy. Brothers and sisters in the Lord, prioritize knowing God and pursuing holiness. And you won't be disillusioned or disappointed in Christianity. You'll be filled with real joy You'll be, you'll have a passion for people and you know what? 
even in today's climate, you're going to have hope for the future. Because you won't be disappointed in what God has called us to do and to be. And make no mistake, we need the hope of Christ today. For ourselves, to be convinced of it, we also need it to be able to share it with others who need it desperately. Look at verse 15. I think verse 15 shows the confidence that these early believers had in what Jesus can do. They even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. So we got to ask the question here, does Peter's shadow have the power to heal? Now normally, the answer obviously is no. Our shadows have zero ability to do anything, despite what Peter Pan would have you think. Our shadows do not come alive, they do not have the power. Some people conclude by this verse that the answer is yes, though. They say, yes, Peter's shadow did have the power to heal, even though it doesn't actually say that they were healed as a result of his shadow. Many believed that it could happen due to the Lord's use of him and the powerful preaching and acts of of healing that he'd already been a part of already. So in reality, it probably wasn't the effect of Peter's shadow that they expected to heal, but of the presence of power of God in which he represented. It's not too far off of what we read in other parts of the New Testament. A woman once believed that she could just touch the hem of his garment, of Jesus' garment, and be healed. Other people believe that Jesus just had to speak the words, not even be there, and their loved one would be healed. Some here believed that if Peter's shadow just fell across them, they would be healed. They expected God to do something incredible here. Now, some of this, I think, is rooted in some ancient superstition. People then often believed that a person's shadow could possess a kind of magical power. If you read through some older manuscripts, um, you'll see evidence of, of people, they would set their children in the shadow of great teachers and important figures. Um, and then if there were people that they didn't like, they would go run and grab their children so that they weren't in those people's shadows. So there was some superstition to what was going on here. But I think what we're talking about mostly is that their actions were displaying faith and a great respect for Peter. Look back at verse 13. It says that they held the apostles in high esteem. But lest we think of Peter too highly than we ought, what has he already said about healings? Look back at chapter 3, verse 12. This is after the, the lame beggar had been healed. He's talking to The Jews in his sermon, he says, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we've made him walk? He's saying, don't look at us. We're not holy enough to make this guy healed. Don't look at us. Verse 16 of chapter 3, he says, the faith that is through Jesus has given this man perfect health in the presence of you all. From Jesus, the faith that is from Jesus has done this, not us. Chapter 4, verse 10, he's preaching again. He says, by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, this man is standing before you well. See, even even Peter, 
who God was using as, a, as an instrument to perform great acts of miraculous healing, even Peter understood it wasn't him. It wasn't his name. It wasn't his authority or power. It wasn't his shadow that could heal these people in this way. It was Jesus. It was the power of his name. But I think this tells us something, especially if you look at verse 16. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. What does this tell us about the church? I think it tells us that they believed. They were confident that something incredible was going to happen here in the presence of God. And so they went out to all of this, not just Jerusalem, to the cities and places outside of town, and they were bringing everybody that was sick and demon-possessed, and they were bringing them in to hear the gospel, just to meet God's people here. They believed that something incredible would happen when they brought their neighbors and their loved ones and people that didn't know Jesus in to meet God in the church body. And I just wonder, when we meet people, when we, when we invite them to church, do we expect God to do incredible stuff in their lives as a result? Or do we just say, hey, if it's convenient, if you're not doing anything else, why don't you come and join us? It's a pretty fun time. You know, the pastor doesn't talk too long. You'll be all right. It'll be fun. Do we try to convince them with worldly things or do we just say, you got to come because incredible things could happen to you. When we bring people who need Jesus to the church, do, do we believe that God is actually going to change their lives? Now, the, the reality is that not everybody who walks into the doors of the church have a physical problem that they're dealing with. Many do, but not everybody has a physical problem But everybody that walks through the doors of this church have a spiritual problem. Unless they've been reconciled to God by Jesus Christ, they have a spiritual problem, which is a greater need in their life than a physical one. Because every one of us is separated from a holy God. And we have no hope of being reconciled with him on our own. But in in Christ... This is the beautiful message of the gospel, brothers and sisters. In Christ, God has sent his son, not as a shadow of complete healing, but as the one who comes and makes all things new. It's a hope that we have in Christ. Now, these healings are, are, are important and significant, and you better believe they're important for the people who were healed, but they were just a shadow of what Jesus can do for a person spiritually. It's fantastic that God did these things with people in the early church. And yet, he does the same thing spiritually for people who understand their need for him even today. That's the message of the gospel that Jesus tells the church to go out into into Jerusalem and Judea and Sumeria and to the ends of the earth with. Jesus has come so that we might put our faith in him and him alone, First John 4.14 4, says that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Church body. Something incredible will happen when we faithfully and boldly preach the truth of Jesus. Please believe it. 
This is what the early church believed. This is why the apostles preached with such boldness as they went out and churches were started. It's because they actually thought God's going to do something incredible here. Now, I don't know what that's going to look like. It may mean physical healings, but we are confident by his word and by all the New Testament authors that the healing that we most need and God has provided in Christ is spiritual healing. And so we've, we invite people, we, we ought to go to the, to our neighbors and the towns around us to come with me. Cause you're gonna get something better than you could ever imagine. Better than you even think. More than what you think you need, you can receive in Christ. Church, is that the message that we go out with? Do we expect it when we share it? Do we boldly preach the truth of Jesus and expect lives to be Change and hearts to be mended and souls to be saved because that's what God is doing. And as we continue on in the book of Acts, we're going to see that this is the message that they go out with. And there, there comes a point in not too much more time where what's going on in Jerusalem, the persecution they're enduring is what sends them out into Judea and Samaria. It's not something that they ask for, and yet they've, they've already prayed, and they've said, God, make us bold in spite of these things. Church, can we pray the same thing today? God, make us bold in spite of whatever might happen. And are we praying those things as a result of our love for the lost? Let's pray and ask God for that this morning. Lord, it is, it is true that our deepest need is not physical, it's spiritual. And yet, Lord, we also believe that you have all power and authority and ability to heal in all of these ways. And so, Lord, if that's how you choose to get our attention, do it. Use us as your people. Sell us out to the gospel. Help us to see and believe the goodness that we find in Christ. Help that be what transforms us so that we then take that message that it might transform others. Lord, we want to be your conduits. We want to be channels of blessing to our church body and to the world around us. So I pray, Lord, as we reflect on these things, that we would raise the bar of our expectations when we come to church. Not to be entertained, not to be moved in a feeling sort of way, but God, that our expectation would be that you're going to do something incredible today and every time the church gathers. And not just here in this location, Lord, but in the churches that our brothers are faithfully preaching your word to here in Pike County and beyond. God, that you might continue this work that you've started in us, your people, and that we might encourage one another and challenge one another even more as we see the day approaching. God, have your way in us today. In Jesus' name, amen.